Hello and welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast for this season when we all go back to school. The Sabbath School pamphlet this quarter is on education and we've really enjoyed so far the, the chance to explore some fun topics and we're going to do another one today. So we're so glad that you can be here with us. My name is Cameron. I'm recording here in Launceston, Tasmania. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. I'm also in Launceston, uh, a rather wet and bleak Launceston for the last few days, but good place to be nonetheless. And I'm Luke, and I'm recording from a very empty and echoing apartment in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. Um, it'll be good to have you back in Australia, Luke. I'm looking forward to it every day. Yeah. Uh, Locke uh, can't join us this week. He is at the moment driving and uh, can't record, so we'll miss him. But he's uh, assured us that he's going to be a very eager and interested listener for this episode. So we're going to jump right into it. The topic for this week is on the law as a teacher. And uh, I'm not really very convinced that the Bible upholds the law as being an effective teacher. I think that there's some points here that can be made on both sides. And uh, there's a fair range of, of scriptures that we could address. And perhaps rather than picking one passage, we might just start with a brief survey on, on what passages do you think of when you think of the law as a teacher. Well, I'm not sure there are any particular biblical passages from my perspective that I think of when I'm thinking of the law as a teacher, Cam. I think of a number of passages about the law. Uh, Romans is replete with uh, passages about uh, the law. I think one needs also to think about what are the passages in Scripture that might refer to it. But what do, what do we mean by the law uh, as teacher? What is the law? Are we talking about uh, a moral law? Or are we talking about uh, the Ten Commandments, the, the law in the Levitical uh, instructions, talking about uh, the law of the state uh, in our modern context? Uh, what is the law that we're thinking about. That's one of the questions that I've got in my mind as we start, but doesn't really answer your question. Well, it, it speaks to it a little bit. The book you mentioned, Romans, I think Romans is sort of, well, it's famously ambiguous about the law, isn't it? Because Paul really lays into the ineffectiveness that the law had for keeping the Israelites on the straight and narrow. And then in the next verse, he says, but does this mean the law is a bad thing? No, no, the law was a good thing with huge potential uh, did the law achieve you know right living amongst it no no it didn't achieve it and he's sort of uh, balancing these the law being good but the law being sort of having been proved to be lacking in its ability to to teach people or to to change the way that they live when i think of the teaching in the bible not so much the law i think of proverbs um, mm. And Proverbs does does refer. I mean, Proverbs has a lot of teaching in it, but it also does refer to to it does reference law in the sense of commandments or commands. Uh, Proverbs four four, for example, says, "Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live." So, you know, coming back to your initial question, Cam, is that the law as a teacher? Because it's not saying here that the law has any particular instructional role. It's just saying, I am instructing you to follow the law for your own good. Yeah, and the Proverbs is a great one, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the Proverbs as a sort of genre is one that we're not familiar with. 
uh, we don't sort of rely on old sayings. But if you're in a oral culture where where you can't write stuff down, I mean, speaking to your comment, Ken, about our modern sense of law, what we imagine when we think of as laws is so heavily dependent on having a system of writing and record keeping, whether laws can be clearly stated, uh, court cases can have proceedings recorded and and precedences can be established and what would a court system look like? What would a system of law look like if if the people who had to adhere to it were largely illiterate? Well, the interesting thing about that is the people who are governed by the law, most people uh, who end up in front of a courtroom, unless they have a lawyer, um, are legally illiterate. The law requires expertise and interpretation. Um, is that how it really should be, if it's going to be effective. Um, In my experience, it is a tremendous disadvantage to appear in court without a lawyer. And yet our system of justice is such that access to a lawyer is either for those who are extremely impoverished and unable to afford a lawyer and who then become eligible to legal aid or those who are extremely wealthy Um, and anybody in between uh, is really going to struggle. Yeah. Dad had a friend who took the local council to court and argued the case himself and he's a really quiet, unassuming sort of person and I'm sure the council thought they had him completely hoodwinked but he was highly methodical and did months of back work and completely blitzed the case. Yeah, the council had to leave with their tail between their legs, and well, of course, preparation uh, is the key to any successful court case, and the person who is the best prepared is probably the one who's going to have the highest advantage. Uh, so that illustrates that. But uh, of course, the classic uh, Australian uh, rendition of interaction with the law, at least in courts. Uh, is the movie The Castle. Yes. (laughs) And if you haven't seen it, then you must uh, see it because it's uh, an absolute classic. But uh, Danny DeNuto, uh, (laughs) the uh, lawyer who argues the case originally and refers to... uh, The vibe. um, It's all Marbo, it's all the Constitution, it's just the vibe of the thing, Your Honour. I I, I always find that most amusing. I would imagine that if you were in a um, culture where very few people could read or write, that when it came to deciding, you know, who's in the right and who's in the wrong in a property dispute, for instance, that people would appeal to things like the Book of Proverbs fairly often, where where principles are laid out for fairness, uh, broad statements about uh, that God. Uh, stands up for the defenceless and we ought to also. You know, these sorts of themes that stand up would have been guiding principles for people trying to solve disputes. The Psalms also has a lot to say about the law and uh, the longest Psalm, which we avoided in our first series where we talked about Psalms because we didn't have time to discuss even the smaller Psalms, but Psalm 119 has heaps to say about the law. And I, I was just looking for a verse to illustrate this and there's a really quite topical one. So I'm looking at Psalm 119, verse 33. It says, Teach me, so we're all into education, Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I'll keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. And 
It's interesting because the law is referred to there in the context of education, but the law is not the teacher. The keeping of the law is the, is the aim of the education that's happening. It's the end goal. But the, the person is appealing to God directly for insight and for instruction. Mm. I think not a bad source uh, of knowledge about the law. I mean, the judge of the universe uh, is probably going to know quite a bit about the moral law, about the law of the state, about natural law, uh, and about all the sorts of laws that we need to, to know about. So, good call, uh, calling on God as the teacher. I was going to say, I think, at least that I can recall, the Old Testament, teaching is always done in person. Mm. You know, even when God teaches, he does it in person. You know, when he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he gives them to him, he, he dictates them to him, and Moses writes them down. But God tells them directly to Moses. It's it's a very different idea than we have from learning, perhaps. Yeah, and when, when Moses had to distribute knowledge to the Israelites, the head of each household would come. And then, mm. and then they would go and teach, but there wasn't like a, it wasn't like a group email that went out to everyone. Yeah, well, and this is this is very much connected to what you were saying about the sort of illiterate societies, because you know the Israelites had writing, but not everybody did write or, or could read and write. Probably most people couldn't. Um, and in that sort of society, you had to pass information on, you know, person to person. And I'm sure they must have had much better memories than we do <laughs> for that sort of thing. Um, because you couldn't just go and check. You had to remember it. And there's a, um, there's a fantastic example of this. This is a little bit off to the side. Um, so cut it if you're running um, short on time. But have either of you ever read The Once and Future King by T.H. White? Oh, I have not. Uh, is this the, the King Arthurian. Arthur legend? Where Merlin yes. goes back. Through. I've read a long time ago. It is, it ago, is the one where, where Merlin is, travels backwards through time. And it, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff in it that's not my point. But the, there is a, a character in it who is based on Robin Hood. And then because T.H. White was, was English and also very knowledgeable about English history and myth and legend and culture and all the rest of it, he based the Robin Hood and his Merry Men on sort of Saxon rebels against the the Normans. Yeah. And there is a scene in the book where Robin Hood gives instructions to his men and he gets all of the leaders of the different bands to come to him and he tells them all the instructions. And then he tells them all the instructions again, exactly as he said them. And then they repeat all the instructions back to him. And then they all go off to their bands and they tell the instructions to their bands and their bands repeat the instructions back to him. And it's this really fascinating example of how a non-writing culture would would convey information to people. Yeah. This sort of process is completely alien to you sitting there reading this book and going, oh, that's how you would have to do it. And I just, I just see echoes of that in the Old Testament. I have a colleague school who I've referred to before. He t- he's a historian, um, teaches philosophy and a few other things. And I, I was talking to him about memory and how important rote learning is in education because rote learning gets a really bad rap in modern education theory. We're all about deep insights and mere memorization is, is such low order compared to, to what we're meant to be doing. And I suspect that the path to deep insight probably 
is paved with a with a lot of rote learning. And I was asking him about this, and he he referred to uh, a, a historian that he had read of who had, as part of his history, had been looking at some of the techniques that British people in the Dark Ages, where again most people were illiterate, would have used for passing information down through generations, or you know Aboriginal or other Indigenous cultures. And he had decided to put it to the test. So he sat down and in the space of a year, he memorised the entire bus timetable for every bus in London. Or it was was something like that. It was something impossible. Using all the different tricks, repetitions and songs and little memory games. And you you could just say to this guy, you know, when's when's the next bus that arrives on Brixton Road that's heading to so-and-so? And it's out, it comes at 10.38. He could just pull the information out. I think that's it's interesting. Perhaps not deep insight by memorising bus tables, but the deep insight that you've spoken about previously, I think is dependent on being able to hold many ideas in your mind at once and being able to see uh, comparison yes. uh, and synthesis uh, with all those ideas, which requires uh, a very substantial facility with memory so mm. i think memorization is is a very important part uh, of learning uh, of course it's impossible to know all of the law and one needs to learn how to find it yeah i, I how, do, how do lawyers manage this ken i think there's a there's a number of ways that it's managed uh, one is you need to have known that there is something about that. Uh, so you'll come up with a, the, the, the problem will present itself and you'll be able to say, there. I know there is something about that. And then you need to have your research tools where you're able to delve into the, the headnotes of the various cases, which are summaries of the cases, like an abstract for an article, uh, and uh, the statutes themselves, and be able to know, well, there's, there's a statute about that, so I'll go and have a look at that statute. So it's your research skills that, that come in from there. You can't, you, you have to outsource your memory uh, to the documents, yeah. but you have to be able to uh, navigate the documents to uh, get the information you need. In your opinion, Ken, um, and this is not, not so much talking about God's law or the Ten Commandments, but just uh, law, the process of laying down rules and keeping people accountable to them, does that successfully educate society at large? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent about the answer to that question and I'll probably give what would be a lawyer's answer and say, well, yes and no. <laughs> um, uh, because there is, there, there is a sense in which the law uh, is incapable uh, of doing anything. Daily, I make restraint orders, apprehended violence orders, domestic violence orders and that sort of thing. And there is no magic uh, in the order that the court makes. The order is not going to prevent somebody doing what they have decided they will do. It will simply be that if and when they are caught doing it and found guilty doing it, there will be consequences imposed for having uh, breached the court order. So uh, the order of the court does not physically go out and uh, place a physical restraint on somebody. It requires the cooperation of society and the state, in a sense, uh, there's an element in which all of the law is a charade uh, in which we choose to pretend that it has a force that it doesn't have that relies entirely uh, on the agreement of the people who are subject to the law uh, to, in- to enforce it. So that's part of the 
uh, answer to your question is that there's no particular magic to the law in achieving compliance with certain norms. Um, there is, however, another part uh, answer to that question, and I think there's a good example of this in the drink drive legislation. Many years ago, decades ago, in fact, it was unlawful to drive under the influence uh, of intoxicating liquor. Uh, and then uh, when the terrible carnage caused by driving after the consumption of alcohol was realised, laws were introduced providing uh, specified alcohol limits. Initially, they were reasonably high at about 0.08, and then it was realised that even at 0.05, there was a, a substantial uh, effect on the ability to control uh, a motor vehicle. So laws were introduced which made it an offence to exceed a prescribed uh, alcohol limit. And if you compare the culture in the days before those laws were introduced with the culture today, uh, you'll see a substantial shift. The culture uh, prior to those laws was one in which if you could get away with it, you did. And now, uh, for at least large portions of society, a conviction for a drink driving offence uh, is seen as a very serious moral failure in ways that it simply wasn't seen mm. uh, decades ago. And, and so in that sense, the law has promoted a substantial cultural shift. In another sense, it also followed a substantial cultural shift, but it has reinforced uh, that cultural shift. Mm. And so uh, in that sense, the law has been a teacher about the grave social evil of drink driving. And my dad goes out once a year to a rural New South Wales town to tune their pianos. I remember him recounting a story he'd heard about the town that there was one old farmer who used to um, turn up. It was at Lake Cajelico, where there's a lake, and he used to turn up uh, to the pub and carefully park his car facing in the direction of home. So that when he came out of the pub completely drunk, he could just hop in the car and, and drive off. And some mm. lads turned his car around one day and he drove into the lake. <laughs> oh, dear. Which I guess could have been very serious. But it is. It is. So uh, the law then is part teacher and part student, Ken, in the sense that the law is, is highly susceptible to change in society. Yeah. And I think we see another illustration of that perhaps in a lot of the... Um anti-discrimination legislation, uh, which prevents discrimination that was rife uh, in the past. Now there's you know, argument about how far that should go, but certainly it both reflects a change in community attitude and also provides a means of uh, enforcing that change in community attitude and promulgating it further within the community. Have the laws surrounding COVID restrictions helped to educate Australians? Mm, isn't that an interesting question? I would say from my perspective, because I've been in Hong Kong, where education of the general public as to what to do in, a, in an epidemic was not necessary uh, because they dealt with SARS and swine flu and avian mm. flu and, you know, all within the last 20 years. So everybody knew what to do already. I would say that Australians have definitely learned a lot based on the things that I heard people say and the things I saw people doing 
six months ago compared to now. Mm. I mean, one example of that, and it's certainly not universal, um, but it's much more common and not viewed as unacceptably as it would have been previously is wearing masks. Mm. Um, Not everybody does it, but nobody's going to, well, except some extremists, Mm. uh, nobody's going to be uh, criticising you for wearing a mask. Uh, Whereas in the past, and and again, bicycle helmets are another example of a similar sort of thing. In the past, wearing a helmet was uh, seen as a, well, not very macho. Uh, Mm. And now uh, even the Tour de France riders all wear their helmets. Mm. Yes, I actually remember when helmet riding was introduced. I was very young in Australia as compulsory. Mm. And I can recall that there were conversations about it being, you know, cowardly and, mm. and you know, unnecessary mm. and kids will be soft and all the rest of it. Well, I was riding my dog for exercise by myself out on a bush track. I assume uh, you mean, at me, one point. Did you say your bike or your dog? My dog. So I was riding the bike. I had him on a leash <laughs> running next <laughs> to the bike. Okay, got it. Yeah, the, uh, it's, it's important to clarify this because what happened was I ran over the leash <laughs> uh-huh. and smacked my head very hard into the ground. And mm. if I hadn't been wearing a helmet, instead of the mm. concussion and memory loss that I did have, I would have died. Yeah. So I'm very glad that they bought in compulsory helmets. I have a similar story, Luke. Uh, I wasn't, it didn't involve a dog, but uh, I was riding to work in Melbourne and uh, a car turned in front of me and then there was a bonnet in front of me and then I wasn't riding my bike anymore. And I remember sliding along the ground and feeling my helmet slide along the ground and thinking, gee, I'm glad I'm wearing my helmet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it would have been disastrous without it. I guess seatbelt wearing would be another example. And, and, Quite. Um, and smoking legislation. Australia's mm-hmm. really led the law with, with our plain packaging. The success of plain packaging is, is staggering. When you look at, I know I was watching a program a few months ago, uh, it has never been a more profitable time to be a tobacco farmer than at the moment. It's horrifying, really, isn't it? It is, and it's the big cigarette firms targeting small uh, developing nations. And in one court mm. case that was talked about, the four major tobacco companies had taken a small African country, I can't remember which it was, it was one of the sub-Saharan African countries, to court over because the country was trying to introduce plain packaging legislation similar to what we've introduced in Australia. And the, the annual profit, combined annual profit of these four companies was, was a full order of magnitude. It was 10 times as much as the GDP of the country. Yeah. You know, what chance did they have? But but Australia has has done really well and between plain packaging and having designated smoking zones it, it has really changed attitudes well and the uh, ban on advertising yeah of course the law can can teach negative as well as positive things you, you think of what it must be like you know in some parts of the u.s one in three uh, black males between the age of 18 and 25 are in jail or have been sent to jail and that that statistic isn't matched by by white uh, people and uh, I've seen videos perhaps our listeners may have seen videos too of demonstrations of this where where the, someone has a bike chained to a fence and uh, someone in a business suit turns up with a pair of bolt cutters and starts cutting it off to take it away and no one asks any questions indeed he gets assistance he gets assistance he asks for help and afro-american young afro-american man comes up and attempts to th- 
the same thing and the police are called. Uh, that teaches. It must must have a phenomenally powerful educational effect on, on young people of colour growing up in the States. And, and it, the same is true in Australia with our own discriminations against Aboriginal people. That you, you, what, what do we do when the law is sending the wrong message or, or reinforcing the wrong cultural values? Well, time for law reform. Mm. I have a question at this point. It's come up from the discussions that we've had. And it's, it goes back to the comment you made at the very beginning, Ken, about how do we define law? So I want to ask the both of you, would you define law to include punishment? Yes and no, Luke. <laughs> oh, well done. You should be a lawyer, Ken. <laughs> yeah. um. I actually don't know the answer, so I thought that was a safe... Um, <laughs> a I don't know response. that there's a right answer. I, I just, I'm just thinking about it because I, I know quite a... I have some some examples and thoughts on punishment as a teacher. Mm. <laughs> and of mm. course, there's, there's biblical ones as well, and also ones from other Christian writers. So is punishment part of the law? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. And Cam was quite right. The yes part of it is that the criminal statutes and statutes creating offences uh, will invariably include a statement of the conduct that is required or prohibited, and then uh, as part of uh, that provision will provide that uh, a breach of the provision is subject to a punishment of up to a particular penalty. It might be up to a certain amount of, uh, of money, or it might be uh, you know, a certain number of years of imprisonment or a certain period of disqualification from holding a license. So in that sense, uh, the penalty is, or the range for the penalty, is specified by the law. Uh, so it is part of the law uh, in that sense. But in another sense, uh, it is separate from the law in that it, it is the consequence uh, that's imposed for a, a breach of the law. But you had some other thoughts about it, Luke. I'd be interested to hear them. Oh, well, I, I mean, would it, based on that understanding, would it at least be fair to say that you cannot have law without punishment? I don't know. Isn't that an interesting question? Um, I suppose you could have law without punishment if it was never breached. If it was never breached, then there would be no need for the law. Well, the law would... Uh, isn't that, then we get into Romans, don't we? That is, it is driving us to what Paul said, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, in particular, I'm looking at Romans 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not be your... For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. But in 5 verse 20, Paul says the law was added so that the trespass might increase. Yeah. So, in fact, there's no, there's no breach. Uh, there's no possibility of breach unless you have the law in the first place. It's the law that creates the breach itself, or, or at least defines what will be a breach. Hmm. <laughs> and, and I think in Romans 7 uh, as well. Is the law sin? Certainly not. But I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Well, he, he may not have known what it was, and yet he might have done it anyway. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I think that's what he means. Well, And it wouldn't have been wrong to do it because the law didn't say it was wrong. Is that I'm uncomfortable. Is that true? 
don't know. I don't think that's true. I think that, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is a sense in which laws and, and principles for good behaviour need to be taught and passed on and part of the role of a society, the legal system at, at the sort of the most corporate elevated government level and just parents in the home at a, at a more intimate local level. We're all as a society responsible for passing on a knowledge of good, harmonious behaviour patterns of life that seem to make society work. We've, we've, society has found what sends, tends to work and we're all sort of responsible for helping to pass that on. So, yes, by all means, we need to pass it on and people might not know they're doing the wrong thing unless they're taught. At the same time, you do sort of hope that there is some sort of basic intuition in this that you wouldn't really have to be taught. And a child doesn't have to be taught that stealing is wrong when someone else steals their toy. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. The thing they have to get... So that the basic moral precept that it's not fair for someone to come and take something that's mine... It doesn't need teaching. The thing that needs teaching is it is just as much an offence for you to take someone else's toy, that that the other person is a person. Is that, is that what we're trying to teach mm. rather mm. than that stealing is wrong? Mm. So I would argue that we have an intuitive understanding that theft is wrong, but but we need constant reminders that the people we we rub shoulders with are actually people. An offence against them is is as significant as an offence against ourselves. It, it's interesting, Cam, you're a great fan of C.S. Lewis, and this sort of ties together with a little bit of what you've been talking about there uh, and also what Luke was talking about in relation to whether punishment uh, was part of the law because many of our listeners won't know uh, that C.S. Lewis uh, was actually published in a law journal um, on theories of punishment his theory of punishment lost out in the broad scheme of things, but he wrote an article which is in a collection of his essays, but which was also published in, as I recall it, the Melbourne University Law Review back in, I think, the 1930s. Um, and his theory of punishment was that you ought not punish a person in order to deter somebody else from committing the same offence. You ought punish him or, or her, based on the offence itself and uh, to, if you like, provide retribution uh, for the offence, but not uh, to have some utilitarian purpose uh, that was for the benefit of society at large. And I think his main concern, Ken, was that if our primary, cur- uh, if our primary object of punishment is to deter then it doesn't matter whether the person you punish has actually done the crime or not. Uh, simply whether or not they th- th- they appear to have done the crime. It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter um, if they've even appeared to have done it. You just have to convince people. To be honest, and I know that because there are countries in the world today that I am more than a little familiar with, uh, at least one, in which they do not hold the theory of law that uh, punishment should be appropriate to the crime and and redemptive they they hold that punishment is a tool for creating the appropriate social outcome through fear mm. and it is perfectly acceptable in such a system to punish an innocent person if it creates the desired fear that is certainly a view of law that does not seem to me to be christian Whereas the Western systems of law 
I think fundamentally are based on ideals that are, if not originating in Christianity, at least shared mm. with it yeah. completely. Even even the even the redemptive side has as a dark side, and I think this is one of the points that Lewis made. If you say someone who's committed a crime does not need punishment, it's so archaic and primal and dating back to feudal times, and it's so it's so inappropriate base. to think of a base to think of punishing people. What we should be doing is helping them. Then even that can have a dark side because what it means is if you have if you have someone who's a bit inconvenient to you, you're in a position of power, you're a politician maybe, and you're in a position of power and someone is is opposing you, then all you have to do is cast their opinions as arising from some mental illness that needs fixing. This person needs help. C.S. Lewis's prediction was that the next major oppression of Christianity was not going to be persecution. It was going to be compulsory re-education for the good of society. Well, my, my immediate question, Cam, would be why do people... I don't think you're making the assumption, but you, you've said it on behalf of others. Why do people assume that a punishment isn't helping someone? We punish children to help them all the time. Yeah, and and one of the points that one of the things is that there are different schools of parenting, and different people employ different mechanisms. Uh, the trouble is, though, that if a if a, if a child's done something that's wrong, I think that they there is just at the basic level of conditioning which is which is a very sort of base level type of education at the, at the level of conditioning it's sort of important for whatever the consequence to be from their wrongdoing that it should be unpleasant so if it if it is not unpleasant if 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 doing the wrong thing doesn't result in an unpleasant thing in that's appropriate and proportionate and uh, administered hopefully with patience and in love and kindness and with the best aim in mind. But it, but it will be unpleasant, won't it? I mean, and there's certainly lots of examples of the Bible. I mean, I think Jonah. Jonah runs away from God and he's not put through a very pleasant experience. So is, is there any real escaping punishment? If, what I'm trying to say is if, if we get rid of punishment, are we creating a more humane justice system? I think that where I think C.S. Lewis has lost out can from conversations I've had in the past with you, is that C.S. Lewis was pointing out that it, that there are problems with with just hoping that punishment will have a deterrent effect. There's problems with focusing on a deterrent effect. And there are some problems even with focusing on a helping, reintegration, healing, you know, let's keep the minds of the... the well-being of the wrongdoer foremost in our minds. Even that could have problems. Um, I don't think it follows, though, that a focus on punishment is without problems. No. Indeed, he's lost out, uh, not because he's wrong to point out the weaknesses in the other aspects of sentencing theory uh, and practice, but because, in the end, uh, what is required is for a court to balance all of those things. Indeed, Mm. I think the numbers, something over 300 different factors that are available to a court in uh, considering sentence. But those which I most commonly deal with will be uh, general deterrence, personal deterrence, general deterrence in the sense of uh, discouraging others who might be tempted to engage in the offending behaviour, personal deterrence in the sense of uh, discouraging the particular offender from uh, engaging in that conduct again, rehabilitation, so um, 
providing support for the offender uh, to address the issues that have led to the offending, um, denunciation uh, to uh, make clear uh, to uh, the offender and society at large uh, that the offending uh, is unacceptable, sometimes vindication of the victim. Uh, the overarching purpose, at least in the Sentencing Act in Tasmania, interestingly enough, uh, to which all of those uh, factors are addressed is the protection of the community. Right. Is one of the 300 things, uh, can restitution, the idea of restoring? Sure. Restitution's part of it as well. Yes. And there's uh, a whole theory of restorative justice. It sounds incredibly difficult. I would not want to be a judge. It's one of the aspects of my work that I do find most difficult. Now, Lachlan's going to be very upset he's missed this discussion because he has many uh, strong opinions on the topic. I hope I'm not editorialising too much. I can, of course, misrepresent his views now with impunity because he's not here. There may be consequences that would flow that aren't immediate, Cam. Yeah, there might be. I know that Lachlan has read quite widely on the, on the concept of restorative justice and a lot of the traditional values that are traditional purposes for law and for punishment have not proven to be hugely effective. Does punishing thieves genuinely deter people from thieving? It, it's, an inter- it's a really interesting question. Uh, I have uh, some very good friends who are judicial officers who would maintain very firmly that it does, uh, be, at least in an indirect way, with people who are generally law-abiding. Uh, it confirms their law-abiding status. But whether it deters an actual future thief is another question. And, and, and there, are, there are suggestions that it might not uh, have, have that effect. It's certainly a vexed issue. Mm. I think it's the sort of topic that you could study great deal and perhaps still not come up with an answer i feel i feel that this topic is getting more and more complicated the more we talk about it i i think it probably is and perhaps we need to stop <laughs> we, we, we need, uh, uh, before if we only because it's become too difficult yeah um, well let's let's appeal. well this this might be one of those topics we might do two episodes on yeah i think that there might be might be value in that i'm also going to open things up as we always do to our listeners, if you have any comments on this, um, then on the law as teacher, and what what do you think the Bible on, on which side does the Bible rest? Does it does it uphold the law as a good teacher, as an effective teacher, or as an ineffective teacher? We'd be interested to know what you think, and uh, you can email us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail I'd like to wrap up our discussion by jumping back to Romans. Paul is obviously trying fairly hard to tread a fine line. He's not dismissing the law as unimportant. He's taking great pains to point out that the law is a good thing, that God gave the law for a purpose. But he's also pretty clear that it didn't work very well. And, you know, there's some of those... Paul is often quite academic, and then he'll launch into a very personal and intimate outcry sometimes and i think of the one i don't think it's from romans this one is it where he says you know i I know what's right but the things i want to do i don't do them it is it's romans 7 yes it is romans 7 it's sin living in me i know that nothing good lives in me that is my sinful nature if i have the desire to do what's good 
but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but sin that's living in me. Would that stand up in court, Ken? <laughs> uh, well, I think I might be suggesting that somebody needs to take personal moral responsibility for their behaviour. Yeah. But uh, look, I think that's an interesting note to finish on, Cam. And, and I wonder if I might just take it one step further because Paul speaks about the law of sin at work in his body. But I wonder whether there might be something from the psalmist uh, where uh, David in Psalm 40 verse 8 says this, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Uh, and I think it's a wonderful uh, experience to, or, or a wonderful ideal to think about uh, how one might experience the law of God uh, within my heart. Yeah, and David's a great example, isn't it? Because he, he didn't do everything right. He, he didn't keep all God's laws, but he kept coming back to God. You know, God was was his constant refuge and he turned to God often. And he's upheld as a hero of, of faith dis, despite his flaws. Um, I also think of the, the passage earlier in Romans uh, which I referred to earlier, but I only read the start where I added, where, where I talked about the law being added so that the sin might increase. Uh, of course, what Paul goes on to say is, but where the sin increased, grace increased even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when you think of the transformative power that Christ's distribution of grace had on Paul and on the other disciples... And, and hopefully we can look back at our lives and, and just at least uh, sense some impact that the knowledge of God's grace towards us has, has changed us. I do hope, I actually haven't checked, is there a discussion where we can talk about God's grace as a teacher? Ah, wonderful, because that was the very phrase that I was going to raise, Cam. Well done. Right. I, I like it. We, we've started with the law as teacher. What about the what about grace as teacher? Yeah, well, uh, we are going to have to leave it there. There's so many more interesting things to talk about, so many more questions to raise, uh, maybe even some answers to find. Although I'm becoming a bit less confident of that, I think that this is a, a complicated issue, and uh, certainly as we participate in society at large and in our churches and in our families, we we do hope and pray that God's law would teach us. And uh, where uh, we are slow students, let us count always on God's grace. And I think it, it is even the giving of God's law and life itself. You know, grace grace doesn't require sin. If, if grace means giving something to someone that they have not earned, then life itself is a gift of grace because we haven't earned that. And uh, I think that we can always count on God's grace to be a good a good teacher and may we ever be attentive students